a Christian friend of mine got into a discussion with a very intelligent man who used on him uh, this well-known illustration. He said, you know, suppose you take 10 men and you blindfold them and you lead them over to an elephant. And now you let each one touch a different part of the elephant, right? So you touch the tail, the trunk, the leg, etc. Without telling them what they're touching. You lead them back inside, take off the blindfolds, and you ask them to describe what they have touched. The man then asks, what do you think their descriptions would be? Would they agree with each other, their descriptions? And my friend said, no, of course not, they wouldn't agree. To which the man concurred, he added, the one holding the tail says, this is a rope, right? Another holding the leg says, no, no, you're wrong, this is a, this is a trunk, this is, this is a tree. Still another says, no, no, you're both wrong, as he's holding uh, the trunk of the elephant. He said, this is a snake. It's a snake. And he concluded, even though each of these men touched the same thing, they did not agree because they only touched part of the whole. They only arrived at the same reality from different angles. And he concluded that even though these men touched the same thing, it's the same thing with all religions, isn't it? Because all religions are basically the same. People just have a different perspective coming at it from different angles. And now maybe you don't have a fancy story like that, but you basically have concluded yourself or you've heard the same thing, and that is, aren't all religions basically the same? Every faith, every sincere faith leads to the same God. So they all pretty much teach the same things, right? To love people and to be a good person. And by doing that, God is happy with you. Or as I heard one comedian once put it, all religions are the same. Guilt with different holidays. Which I thought was a clever way to put it, to be honest. But in fact, the Christ of Christianity is uniquely set apart from every other religion, philosophy, or life hack you can think of. The entire religion of Christianity is different in two different ways. One It rises and falls with the historical person of Jesus. Uh, Siddhartha didn't have to to live on for the eightfold path of enlightenment, Buddhist path of enlightenment, to still hold true. Muhammad didn't have to exist theoretically for Islam to be true. After all, Islam would say that Allah is our God and Muhammad is his prophet. Just a prophet. But everything rises and falls with the life, death, and resurrection of this man, Jesus Christ, this historical person who lived before us. And so it is so good that we have a record of who he is. But Christianity is different in another way, that Jesus also preached, this historical Jesus preached about something called grace. That only Jesus said that neither your good deeds nor your rigorous self-discipline will make you right before God will earn for you salvation. Salvation is a free gift actually based on what someone else has done on your behalf. So no other religion says this, has this message. You can articulate this, what sets Jesus apart. And still, sometimes nobody will listen. Maybe you're here this morning, and you hear this, and you're interested. But some people will hear this, and they just won't listen. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul was preaching about these two realities of Christianity, the historical person of Jesus and the grace, the free gift of grace that can save people. And still, sometimes he got into situations where people just would not listen to him. How did he cope with this? He didn't give up. 
Nor did he just assume that, oh man, people, they're just too hard-hearted. That's on them. That's their fault. No, he changed his strategy. He started with his story. In fact, three times towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul shares his story. We're going to read and learn from the third of three times he shares his story of how he trusted his life to Jesus, what's called his testimony. So as you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, that's going to be on page 800. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provided. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in these chair pockets at the end of these aisles. You're going to want to grab those this morning. And that's going to be on page 800 if you're using one of those Bibles. Acts chapter 26. As you open there, I want to give us some important context of what's been going on in Acts, because I basically just skipped five chapters. We were last in Acts 21, and we're five chapters forward. The last time we saw Paul, he had a mob of Jewish worshipers surrounding him. They were accusing him of letting a non-Jewish person come into the temple with them. And that was a big no-no. That was a big no-no. Only Jews were allowed to be in the inner parts of the temple where they could worship God together. They were accusing him, Paul, you have let this non-Jewish person in the temple that is wrong, which in fact actually was a lie. They didn't know that he had not brought someone in the temple. And secondly, they accused him of wanting to destroy that temple, wanting to take it out, and had no longer had any need in the Jewish faith. And so they were getting upset about this. This mob came together. It began to spread. And it got so bad that this Roman allegiance, this, this cohort, the head of a Roman cohort, which was a thousand people, has to come up from his high tower, seeing what's going on, runs down, and basically saves Paul. And of course, to appease the crowd and make them calm down, he arrests him as well. He binds him in basically old-time handcuffs. And he takes him and he jails him. And that's where we left, last left Paul. Uh, he shares a defense, though. Every person has rights. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he had the most rights of anyone. So he gets to share what has happened with the authorities. First, he shares with a Roman governor named Felix. Felix throws him in jail, trying to earn points with the Jewish people, and he waits for Paul to bribe him, <laughs> like a lot of police would, right? Felix does as well. Well, Paul does not bribe him, and Felix eventually passes away. He's succeeded by a guy named Festus. Festus has been around for a while, an old-time bureaucrat. He works his way up the ladder. He was a city magistrate. He's working his way up the ladder. He becomes a governor. Festus is a governor of this, this region of Judea. Okay? Now he's already heard Paul share his defense one time, share his story, his testimony. And Festus finds no guilt in him. But that's not really the interesting part. The interesting part is he's kind of confused about it. He hears some stuff about religion and this and that, something about Jesus and never dying and somehow he's still alive. But in general, he walks away confused. Why is that? Well, Festus is growing up around a circus of religions. Dozens of gods and goddesses passed down from the Greeks, newly popular mystery religions and cults who had secret initiation rites. And if you got into it, you got to know the secret knowledge, kind of like the Illuminati today, that's what they experienced back then. Then you had Stoics who believed that God was one spirit, controlling everything in life. And on top of that, because Festus was now governor in Judea, he was hearing all about this new Jewish religion he had not really heard much about before. They were stirring up trouble, riots by Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots. 
This was the world Festus grew up in. And Festus had been so exposed to all of it that it began to blur together such that he couldn't tell one religion apart from the other anymore. So what does he do? When judging Paul's case, being a little bit confused, he goes to a fellow governor to the north who knows a little bit more about this stuff. A guy named Herod Agrippa II. The grandson of the ruthless Herod the Great. Agrippa was a symbolic head of the Jewish nation. So he had, he had known some genuine worshipers of Yahweh, but he'd also seen, because he was in politics, right, he'd seen and heard tales of people who were just putting on a front about religion, who lived double lives, who came in saying, bless the Lord, but went out having bribed him, right? And so he was used to all of this kind of religion. So in Agrippa, we find a man who is familiar, but had probably grown very cynical towards religion. All of this, I think, represents in these two men the times we live in today. People we encounter. I've been reading and listening to a guy named Peter Jones. He's a well-respected Christian author of a really neat book called The Other Worldview. He talks a lot about our, our culture's actually returning to the baseline of paganism. A time when God, spirituality, church morality all kind of bleeds together to the point where we all consider it Consider everything all one. It's all one. It's all part of the same stuff. Which is why people often say, isn't this all this old religious stuff all part of the same thing? They're just different ways to get there. And of course, this has many, many um, consequences to how we live. Because the lines are, are blurred between creature and creation. If it's all one, then we're all part of the same stuff. And we're all kind of our own gods and goddesses. We can all make our own rules. We can all be our own masters of our own destiny. Festus knew what this was like. It all sort of blurred together from him. He was exposed like we are because of the internet, because of the frequent access we have to travel, to so many different kinds of religions and worldviews. It all just sort of started to sound the same as it did for Festus. Like Agrippa, many of us are cynical to those who would claim that one religion is unique out of all these. That one religion really sets itself apart. But sharing a testimony, sharing one's story about a changed life, all of a sudden Jesus is set apart right in front of the person, right in front of the listener, because Jesus has set you apart. So there's something powerful about one's testimony. In a nutshell this morning, here's what I want to communicate to you. Your story can set Jesus apart when moral and religious talk blurs together. When it all just starts to sound the same to people, Blurring together your story about Jesus' impact and changing and transformation of your life can set him apart from everything else. And I hope we see this this morning. Because there's only so much we can say in trying to explain the gospel. And sometimes it's good to step back and share what trusting Jesus looks like in your life through your story. Paul's testimony provides us with a very wise framework of how we can do this, how to organize and share our story. So you have your notes here this morning. And I'm going to put these uh, notes online as well. So you have them. These notes are called The Testimony of How You Came to Trust Jesus for Salvation. Organize your story so that people will listen. Again, I'll put this this online as well on our uh, media page. But uh, hopefully you have this. So follow along with me if you would. First of all, what we're going to see is Paul preps his audience. He preps them. So follow follow along, Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he began to make his defense. I consider myself 
unfortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all these accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul is preparing them for a defense he's going to make, a legal defense against the accusations brought against him. Of course, what's brilliant about Paul and what he does is he spends very little time defending himself and very much time talking about his story. Now, unlike Paul, we are not really on trial, except for the fact that the person sitting with you, the person with whom you might share your story, is going to be judging it, right? They're going to be judging it. They're going to be judging you. They're going to be judging your life as you share it. So in one sense, we are on trial, even as we share our story. But we can prepare a person for it. Here's why I think it's worth worth it for you just, just to listen to my story. Would you listen just for a few minutes? Let them know up front a particular need that Christ fulfilled in your life. Let them know from the beginning a character trait of God that proved crucial. His love, his persistence, his discipline, his patience, his faithfulness to you. Let them know up front someone or some circumstance that God used to help you trust your life to Christ. Some examples include, honestly, for most of my life, I wanted to have nothing to do with God. But he kept putting people in my life who, just like him, kept loving me consistently and faithfully as I am and not as I should be. Or you might want to say, man, I, I used to give Christ a, just a small sliver of my life, a slice of the pie. So Jesus was for me like I was a student, I was a son, I was a parent, uh, I was a baseball player, I was a rugby player, I majored in engineering, and I was a Christian. It was just another thing in my life. But then I realized that Jesus wants more of me. He wants all of me because he loves me so much. Or you might want to say, man, I thought I was a Christian because I was a pretty good person, but it turns out that's not enough. These are some, some things you can say from the beginning to prepare the person listening to your story. Okay? Use a brief statement. Get their attention so you can launch into the rest of it. So that's the first part we see Paul. And Paul continues a testimony. Look how brilliant this is. How Paul lays it out with such organization so people can follow. Verses 4 through 9. Let's read that. Paul continues, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning, among my own nation in Jerusalem, it's known by all the Jews. They've known it for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, Paul talks about what his life was like B.C. So the first part of your testimony is preparing people to listen. To give them a, a little nugget of what you're going to talk about. The second part is you want to talk about your life before Christ. Paul was extremely religious. Extremely religious man. The kind of guy you'd see at temple every day. The kind of guy making sacrifices. The kind of guy who would show you that he was a religious person. But religion is man's attempt to get to God. And when you succeed to do that, when you feel like you've gotten close to God because of your hard work, because of your good deeds, because of your charitable acts towards others, because of your rigorous self-discipline and praying or reading your Bible, whatever it might be, what happens is you start to look down on others for their lack of discipline, their inability to believe, 
or an ability to serve like you do. And this had clearly occurred in Paul's life. This is what he's sharing. It got to the point where he had looked down on people so much that it got violent. But this happens in all cases the more you grow in religion, man's attempt to get to God. Christianity is God's coming down to man. That's what Jesus did, right? He came down to man be with us, to rescue us, to throw out the life preserver because we cannot save ourselves or work ourselves up a ladder. God comes down to man, which humbles us, but also fills you with confidence. Because when you get up and down that ladder, when you go up and down in life, you can be assured that God still loves you, cares for you, and is your son or daughter forever. It's amazing. But back to sharing the story. What you want to do is you want to give people an idea of what things were like before you trusted Jesus for salvation. What was your relationship towards God like? What were your thoughts about him like? For example, maybe your relationship towards him was non-existent. Maybe you were enemies. You were clearly bitter at God for various things that happened to you or someone close to you. Maybe your relationship with God was just stale. You just didn't care. You were indifferent. Maybe it was based on a lie, like being a good person in comparison to others. At least I'm better than that person, so God should accept me and love me. How did you relate to other people? Or maybe you were living a double life. You put up this front like you were a good person, but in secret, you were self-indulgent or hypocritical before you trusted Jesus. So first, again, you want to be sharing, preparing people for what you're going to share with a simple statement. Also, what Paul says so brilliantly, here's my life before Christ. And a quick aside here, I think that's very important. Often people feel like they've been like a Christian, been a Christian their whole lives. Any of you like that? Feel like you've been a Christian your whole life. And thus, your story is not as good or as valuable or as exciting. It doesn't pop like someone else's story, like Paul's. First of all, you were not a Christian out of the womb. All right, let me just get that reality across right away. You are not a Christian out of the womb. Jesus is pretty explicit about this. Hence, him saying, you must be born again. You're not a Christian out of the womb. You weren't a Christian until you can mentally, volitionally trust your life to Jesus. Not the running, smiling cartoon Jesus you saw on stickers at VBS. But Jesus Christ. You had to trust your life, think about it, to someone you've never seen in your entire life. That's a huge decision. Now admittedly, some of you may have done that at an earlier age. and You might not remember an exact moment, but it was an important moment. What really caused you to trust him. What circumstances, what person, what crisis of belief, what series of experiences or what season gave rise to you believing and trusting your life to a man who lived 2,000 years ago who you never met in the flesh. You could not have just been born and the doctor slaps you and you're like, hallelujah! It doesn't happen to people. All right? There had to be a time. So everyone has a testimony. Remember, the requirement for being a Christian, for knowing God forever, isn't praying a prayer nor getting baptized. It's trusting your life to this man, Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure if you've done that, I want to encourage you. You can go back August 9th. You can listen to my message, uh, Born Again, Where Do I Stand? August 9th, it's on our, our website. Even if your story of trusting Jesus is gradual and you battled, maybe you battled to earn God's salvation, your non-dramatic, normal testimony might be just what the Holy Spirit ordered. First of all, 
that non-dramatic, normal testimony is likely more relatable to other people. When people hear dramatic stories, one of their first thoughts is, in my experience, oh, that's because that person in addiction and some sort of you know, awful place in their life, they needed Jesus. He was their crutch. Religion is a person's crutch when they're completely desperate. Not a lot of people relate to that. But they can to a more normal, gradual story of trusting Christ. Secondly, you can share your present dependence on Jesus. People don't often need to hear how you changed 20 years ago because they're relating to the you of now. So it's great to share how you're presently depending on Christ for life and salvation. That's helpful as well. So important aside, Paul shares again a brief, here's what's coming. He shares a little more what life was like before Christ. Thirdly, he shares about expectations or misconceptions about God and Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but they were put to death because I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. For us, we have expectations and misconceptions before we become Christians about Christianity, Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, about church, about what God would require of you to know him forever. People have misconceptions. Paul says here, doesn't he, he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, but he was convinced wrongly, right? He had a misconception about who Jesus was and is. How are you convinced wrongly? What, what was different in your mind and what you thought about Christians or about God or about church or about Jesus himself? It's a third thing. A fourth thing we see in terms of how Paul organizes his testimony here is what God did. Look at verses 12 through 18. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. In midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had heard, they fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Despite all the interesting and fascinating things about Paul, and he lived a fascinating life, Paul makes sure that he conveys that God, God is the climax of this story. He came in, he intervened, he shone the light into his life that he may see that Jesus is really God. The God who loves him, the God who can forgive him, and the God who's worthy to tell others about. He is the highlight of the story. People need to hear not just that you change, but that there's a God who intervened to help you change, to cause that change. Try your best, if you will, just practically to condense that into one sentence. That's the best way to do it. Through whom? Maybe that's their big question. Or, or under what circumstances? Or how are you feeling 
when that happened or right before God began to do something. For instance, Paul fell down. What was going on in that moment when Paul just fell down before the light that blinded his life and changed him forever? What did God do? You might want to say something like, well, you know, God sent someone who cared enough about me to say, man, you're selfish. You're destroying those around you who love you. Maybe it was, man, I finally started picking up my Bible and reading it, and I opened it and started to make so much sense for the first time. And I finally saw this Jesus is real. It was like truth was spilling out of the pages. Maybe you see something like that. But you want to share what God did. Fifthly, you want to share your first response, okay? This is what Paul does. Remember, he shares about, Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Paul, Paul's like, man, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. The goads were these sharp little prods that farmers would use to prod their oxen along. And any time the oxen would rebel, they would self-inflict wounds to themselves. All right. So what Jesus is saying to Paul in this moment on the way to Damascus is, Paul, why are you inflicting these wounds on yourself? You know I'm real. Trust in me. Go on, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He responded. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout the region of Judea, also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God also, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Paul responded to God and began obeying him from the heart. Our initial response may not be so rosy. For some of us, we may be scared. Like, what is happening to me in my life? You might be filled with immediate joy or with such strong faith you want to go out and take on the world because of what God's done for you. Some of us here, we waffle back and forth at first between belief and unbelief, just like the man in Mark chapter 9 who says, Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That might be your first response. Your first response to Jesus' work in your life might be that you're confused. That's okay to share too with people because they might be confused too about who God is. Or maybe you thought one thing was happening, and you look back and you realize, man, actually God was doing something else there. You can share that. Sixth thing Paul shares, and would be wise for us as well, is how your life has changed. You're changed and changing life. Look at this in verse 22 and 23 from Paul. To this day, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul had a new identity because of what Jesus had did for him. He was an ambassador. He was a representative of God to take the good news to other people, to other places, just like an ambassador would. Through the gospel, he continually is changing. And so are we. We trust Christ. Give an account of how Jesus is, has changed and is currently changing your life. For example, you might want to say, man, I began to see people differently after I trusted Christ. I began to love them differently, care for them differently, treat them differently. You may want to say, man, I started to relate to God more as a father. And I saw how he proved his love for me through Jesus. It might be, I began the slow process of breaking a sinful habit in my life because Jesus love was so much greater than that sinful habit and began to break it. So share about your changed and changing life. Finally, share about your desired response for this person. Paul doesn't leave them hanging. 
he closes with this. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. They often called the governor the king at that time. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, this is such a great line, Paul, it's such a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, a Christian. Except, of course, for these chains. Right up front with people. Paul doesn't leave them hanging. He doesn't leave them to guess what was needed. He knows a response is required to trust Jesus. So some ways you can do this. Bill, have you ever experienced anything like what I've described? Great way to end with a question. Or Mary, can I share with you more about this news about Jesus? Who's been, this news that's been so good for me, how it can become good for you too. You can share the gospel with them, very simply. Or Jane, do you have any questions about what I've shared with you? Any of these ways, just prompting people to respond with a question is a great way. And by the way, some people, we, we feel like this is sometimes pushy. It's imposing. We don't want to proselytize people. Did I ever tell you the story about my Buddhist friend in university? I don't think I have. I met this guy my freshman year, one of these general ed classes where you go and you read books and you think a lot and you talk about life and you're really only 18 years old, so you really don't know that much. But well, you do it anyway, all right? And this guy was in my class. He was a Buddhist, and, and we got talking about the book of Genesis. It was one of our little things we read. And he was clearly hostile towards Genesis, towards Christianity. But we got to be friends, and we talked about it from time to time. We do stuff together. He played basketball with me and this sort of stuff. My senior year, going to lunch one day between classes, I approached one of our tables with my meat, salad, and Lucky Charms, like I always do. And, and, I, and I get there, and this, my friend, my Buddhist friend's waiting for me, almost like he was just ready to ambush me. So I sat down, like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, well, I really wanted to speak to you today. I said, well, tell me. It's like, I heard about the good news of Jesus. I never really heard it before. And I wanted to ask you a question. Why didn't you ever share this with me? I said, well, I just didn't want to, you know, you didn't seem interested, so I didn't want to impose, I didn't want to get into it. He said to me, you believe this is the key to life, right? I said, yeah, you believe that if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life, correct? I was like, yeah. I was like, are we friends? I said, yeah, we're friends. It's like, the most important thing in your life the thing you believe is the secret to eternal life you never shared with me. I said, I guess not. It's like, man, we're not that good of friends. And man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And it made me realize the most loving thing you can do for a person is to share your story with them, to share with them the good news about Jesus Christ. If you truly love them, not just like them enough not to step on their toes, if you truly love them, you'll share your story with them. Now look, nobody wants to stand in front of people with a sheet of paper as they share their story. But like learning an instrument, you want to share it by heart. You want to to play your instrument by heart. But like learning an instrument, that means getting organized and starting with sheet music. How will you apply this to your life this morning? I hope and pray that you finish this sermon for me by sitting down 
and putting your story to paper. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that this morning we can do something a little different, a little more practical, and think about how we can share our story with others, that we can put our story to paper. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who not only shared with people the good news about Jesus, but shared with others how that good news had transformed his life. We can do the same. Sometimes, Lord, we know from experience that there are people who will not listen to us talk about our faith, talk about religion, talk about Jesus, talk about Christmas, whatever it might be, but they'll listen to our story. We pray that even this week you'll give us opportunities to not only write this down, but to share it with someone we love, because that's really loving them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.